Welcome back to the Shit You Don't Learn in School podcast. This is Calvin Rosser. And this is Steph Smith. And in today's episode, we are putting ourselves into the shoes of the many people who are figuring out in real time what on earth to do with new developments like ChatGPT. All right, so to kick it off, if you don't know what ChatGPT is, please do a quick Google search and come out from under your rock because you're going to need to know that for this episode. It's this chat-like interface, which was trained on top of GPT-3, which was built by OpenAI, where you can ask it almost anything. There are some restrictions, but you can ask it facts. You can ask it to write a screenplay in a certain tone. You can ask it to write an entire article. It can do a lot of things, and a lot of people have started to use it. One data point that came out just the other day was that ChatGPT reached 100 million users two months after launch. And I think I saw another graph, which is just the speed that it hit 10 million active users way faster than many consumer apps that people are familiar with. So it has taken the world by storm. But as part of that, I thought an interesting frame was that there are so many people who are in positions that typically don't really have to think about artificial intelligence, who now have to make meaningful decisions about their businesses, the people who they interact with, their consumers. And I thought it might be an interesting way for us to talk about this, is to put ourselves in the shoes of those people, whether it's an admissions officer, a teacher, a doctor. There's all these people who now are facing this question probably sooner than they expected of what do we do? Yeah. So what you're saying is that ChatGPT is just a different version of Google in a chat interface and lots of people are talking about it. You know, I've seen that argument online, but I think in some ways fundamentally different. One of those ways is that you can create new content, which Google uses in machine learning, but it's only servicing existing content. So again, to use an example, you could be like, hey, ChatGPT, give me this recipe, but give it to me in exactly this way, or write it like it's written by a five-year-old, or explain this really complex concept to me as if Albert Einstein was telling me, or in the same tone that some comedian would say it. So you can, again, create net new content with the tool versus Google is just archiving and surfacing all the content that's been published online. I think that's a good distinction. And the differences with Google is why it's stirred up, I think, a lot of controversy because it seems like something new. Lots of people are talking about it. And it has many implications for things like education. I think I saw an article, maybe it was a month ago, but New York City actually banned access to this tool on the networks within some of its schools. Exactly. And of course, new technologies are not new to the world. And there have been many times where there's been pushback or people have had to decide what rules, what regulations should be in place. But I think this tool in particular has gotten so much adoption so quickly that people are having to, or at least starting to, make some of these decisions at this rapid pace and without that much data. And so I thought it'd be interesting to talk about some of those examples like the school board of what would we do in those similar situations. All right. So where are we starting? Let's just talk about the different people we'll be covering. So we'll be covering the content creator, but we'll also be covering the book publisher. So two sides of a similar coin. We'll talk about being the owner of a stock image site, the Princeton College Admissions Officer, a middle school teacher, and the head of the Bar Association. So where do you want to start? Why don't we start with content creators? Because that's what we are and probably closest to our world. Okay, great. So let's expand this to not just be chat GPT, but the different AI models that have been built and released over the last couple of months, which includes not just text to text, but also text to image, for example. And I think very soon we'll also see text to video, text to sound. And so ultimately that impacts not just writing articles, but it could be starting Instagram feeds. It could be starting a completely AI generated podcast. So for each of these, why don't we just quickly mention different things we've seen in the news that relate and how some people are reacting. So for example, 
In this case, one company, BuzzFeed, has actually come out publicly and said that they're going to use AI tools from OpenAI, so ChatGPT, to personalize its content. Now, I don't know exactly what they mean by personalize here, but I think what they're getting at is they're going to publish a lot more content with the help of this AI. So what would you do, Cal? Would you do the same and just use this superpower that we have access to? And would you go and pump out a bunch of content? The BuzzFeed example is interesting because I think of BuzzFeed as a dying site, a part of a legacy media industry that relies on ad dollars and in an increasingly competitive world of content, they're struggling to keep up. And so one piece of making their business survive would probably be to cut costs. So I think this is one way to do that. You take out the humans, you add in ChatGPT. It's probably going to produce content of a similar quality with less cost. But then I read the memo, I think it was from the CEO about this, and they also seem to think that it's going to be able to add more life to their content. So in a world where there's algorithmic feeds and everyone's pumping out things really quickly, you may be able to add more color or just little pieces of information that with the speed that's required, you may not have otherwise been able to do. I don't really know because I haven't been under the hood of this business, but it does strike me as BuzzFeed's kind of jumping on the AI bandwagon, probably to pump up their shareholder price. And I'd be curious to see if this really revolutionizes their site in any way. I really think that they're going to just struggle as a business either way. So I will say as a content creator myself, I haven't really taken these tools and done anything meaningful with them. But I do think this idea of using it to actually spice up content instead of just churn out a ton of content is interesting. Because from my experience, one of the most new aspects of ChatGPT is the ability to mold the result. You could create a site, for example, and it could be curated around the most complex concepts on earth, explained to you like you're five. Or I don't know what the legal ramifications of this are, but using the funniest man on earth's tone to explain really dull concepts. And you create like a children's book for kids who are trying to learn programming, for example. So I think there are ways that, again, if you're just using it to churn out all the content that already exists on Google in this monotone, very basic way, I don't know what wedge you have with that other than maybe speed. But I think in addition to speed, if you can find your own angle, I've talked about this before, people don't often care about what you're talking about. They care about how you're doing it. And I think ChatGPT actually gives you a pretty unique way to do so. And it's also true for text to image. Like I've seen a couple artists come out with what feel like totally new artistic styles. And to me, those are revolutionary ways of using that tool instead of just using it to create the images we've seen all over the place. To add to that, I forgot the name that I came up with it, but I had this idea that there's a lot of information stored in books, like how the Beatles produced the song Strawberry Fields Forever. We talked about this idea in the Opportunity is Everywhere podcast a couple of months ago. And the basic idea was that there's a hunger for information about random things that people like, like how were the best songs in the world created? What's the actual story behind them, the meaning behind it? And I think my idea there was to actually be the person that goes through all of the books and take all that knowledge from this medium that most people aren't engaging with and bring it to life in the form of a daily newsletter. I don't know if ChatGPT could do that well, but I do see a world in which you could much more easily create that newsletter as a solo creator if you just ask ChatGPT the basic information and then you add your flair onto it. And also the idea there would be ChatGPT is going to spit out the like median information, the like basic stuff. And so you can see what like an average person would say about that. And you can push your thinking and writing further beyond that by adding things to it and not just going with the default answer there. I think something that's also underrated is that ChatGPT can be used as kind of like your assistant, but different kinds of assistants. So it can not only write the end output of whatever you're trying to create, But it can also be a thought partner with you to come up with the topics that you want to write about. So you can ask it like, hey, ChatGPT, I heard that the Beatles did X, Y, or Z, or I heard that this song was created in this way. Are there other songs with this kind of story behind them? Or you can imagine it as this assistant that can be fine-tuned in different ways to help you as if it's a full team. And I would actually encourage people to view their work or their prompts with ChatGPT in those ways, as in like, oh, at this stage, I'm in ideation. So I'm going to ask it these kinds of questions. And then I'm going to move from ideation 
to writing or to organizing or whatever it is that you need to do. A research assistant is probably one of the most compelling use cases for it. It's just going to make you more efficient. You save energy, et cetera. And I think a lot of people could amplify their work just by doing that. One other quick note on the content creator is that while these tools are very exciting, they won't address everything. And so there are certain content creators that I think will become more compelling because certain low-hanging fruit that can be tackled by AI is just going to see like this wave of content come out and it's all going to look the same. And so one example of this is a creator on Instagram that I follow and her handle is called Watch Maggie Paint. And what she does is she goes to different weddings and I don't know how she does this, but she basically paints a single shot from the wedding and she's just so incredibly good at it that as you watch her paint live, she does them over four hours. It's actually mind-bending to realize that she's able to do it to such precision. And all of these weddings still have a photographer, right? They have what you could argue is the more perfect version of the shot. But because people know that it's not done by a human, it wasn't done live in the same ways, it means less. And so there's going to be other versions of that. The same way that the camera commoditized standard photos and then other forms of art became more important because they could not be replicated with a camera, I would also be asking the question, what cannot be replicated with AI today? In those cases, I think you'll have more of a moat. Now, the question of course is whether eventually those can be replaced with AI, but I think we'll take it one step at a time. One of the concerns that people express when they see a tool like this is, oh, it's going to stop certain artists from being able to make money or it's going to take their jobs from them. And we've talked about this before, but I do believe that things like low-level writing that could be automated with AI or someone who's not that skilled with photography, those could certainly be replaced by AI. But within all of these innovations, it's like people who learn how to use the tools or they tap into something else, which is now that we have all this free, commoditized, pretty decent content, we have the hunger for seeing people actually do things. I feel like there's been a renaissance in craft making of things, craft beers, craft pottery, people wanting to connect with individuals and the stories behind those brands. And that's why they buy from them, not because it's the best thing or is produced the most quickly, but it, it taps into this human desire to connect with other people and to appreciate craftsmanship. Yeah, exactly. So let's move on to the next one, which is a book publisher. I thought this one was interesting because I think it's inevitable that some group of creators is going to use ChatGPT to write a book. Now, again, it depends how good those books end up being in terms of whether picked up by publishers. But if you are a publisher, you are faced by this question of, will we publish AI written books? I think it's going to be increasingly hard for them to even be able to tell whether they were written with AI. But I do think it's a question that probably if you are a book publisher, you're asking right now. If we take the frame of the book publisher, what is your goal? It's to work with people who create best-selling books so that your company makes more money. That's essentially what you would be thinking about. And so to the extent that these tools can help people do that, then I don't see why you wouldn't adopt this in the absence of any legal considerations that you had to worry about. And we probably should leave those aside because those are just unanswered questions right now. But in my mind, part of the chatter around book publishers and books and stuff, it's like, oh, but it's not coming from a human it's not as real or it's going to give an unfair advantage to certain people. People call these ethical questions. And I don't know what the big riff is about that because the market is going to decide if people want to consume these books that are written by ChatGPT or other tools or that are co-written by that. If that leads to a better book that people want to read, then you should probably lean into that and not be so stodgy in terms of holding on to the old ideals. So I personally agree with you, but I do see how some companies, and we'll talk about this when we get to stock image site owners, there is an opportunity here for each company to publicly signal what they quote unquote stand for. And it would not surprise me if some publishers come out and they say, look, we do not accept AI written content. We support human authors. That's the lifeblood of our business. That's what we'll always support. And Again, I don't even know if they're going to be able to operationally hold true to that, but I could see people using this as a branding moment 
of what they stand behind. And I think that would be smart because that would help tell your potential customers of your books, what is it that you stand for? And those people who want the human written books are going to go towards that. And then there's probably some other people who are like, no, I want to read the AI book, see what they come up with. Maybe they're more interesting in different ways or whatever. But to think it's a big dilemma that's going to put writers out of business, I don't really think that's right. I think it's just going to create new little forms of writing and maybe even enhance some. Another interesting angle that I just thought of is something that I find fascinating about the potential of AI is how it can be optimized to you, if that makes sense. So imagine a book. Imagine that someone writes a book about a topic and you actually have a button on your computer that says, hey, I'd like to read it at a grade three level or I'd like to read it like an Oxford professor. So there's that option of customizability, but then there's also more like a game. I guess this only works for certain types of books, but where you actually get to say what happens next or which characters you like and the mood of a particular setting. I don't know. Maybe I could see the argument where actually people don't want to make those decisions. They want the book fed to them. But I could imagine how there's a dynamism that can be created through AI that if people want that in the end, you can't actually physically replicate that on a piece of paper. Yeah, I think that will lead to the amplification of things we've already seen. Like, I think there's an AI that can help write a personalized story for your child. That's a great idea. Like, why wouldn't I want a children's book that is personalized to my child and their likes and dislikes and a story that maybe has a lesson that I want to tell? I think that's like a beautiful way to maybe change parenting or change the nature of the books that are read within that realm. But I still think that there's going to still be room for the other children's books. and. To me, it's just like a new piece of the market. It's not going to replace everything. And in fact, it may just expand the market of people who read. Because how many people actually read? It's a surprisingly low percent. I don't remember the number, but I've seen the graph for this and it was way lower than I thought. But you're right. I do find it fascinating to consider what we can do digitally with these stories that we could not previously do without AI. And there are already companies, to your point, I think one of them is called Bedtime Story. AI, which is curating the story for a child, but also the avatar or the character because of these text to image tools. They can actually, you know, imagine your kid reading a book and the, the little cartoon looks like them. I think that's so cool because obviously we haven't had that before. To me, if people are consuming that type of work over scrolling TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, other forms of social media, and books are cool and engaging again. They're more modern and consumable within the competitive landscape that exists today of content. That's wonderful. And it actually could end up just being a great thing for publishers and content creators who want to be writers who tap into the modern brain, which is pretty distractible. Yeah. The last thing I'll add here is that I've already found at least one course on Udemy basically is teaching people how to use ChatGPT to self-publish a book. And in this case, it says within 24 hours, which is wild. And I mean, without commenting on what I think about this course in particular, it already has a thousand students who have bought it. And I expect to see many more of these courses. And so if I was a book publisher, something I would be thinking about is how on earth I will be able to weed through all the junk. I mean, there's going to be a lot of great stuff that comes from this, but also just we've seen that anytime a tool like this democratizes someone's ability to participate, you just see a huge increase in volume, but that volume is not evenly distributed. You, you see a lot of low quality stuff come in and then some gems that you need to weed out. Yeah. If you take that course and you haven't learned how to write or tell a story or share a message with people in a way that connects, I think you need still all of those skills to be able to use a tool like ChatGPT to connect with people with your work. And that's why I think it's going to be an amplifier for people who already know how to do things. Imagine you're a fiction writer and you write different types of stories. You can use it in the seed stage of ideation instead of just letting your unconscious brain do things. You can say, hey, I'm thinking about writing a romance story that involves these types of characters. Like what should their names be? Or what's like an interesting set of plots that could happen here? And it gives you the rough skeleton of what you should do. And then you as the writer with your unique voice can go in and tell that story in a way that other people can't. 
and all you got was like the skeleton, but people who just pump out content with just the tool without all of these other foundational skills, it would be surprising to me if that was successful. Yeah. But the question still is, how are the publishers going to be able to get through so much content? Like Maybe there's an AI that they create that actually reads all the book submissions that they get and rates them in some way. But also, I just wanted to quickly comment on your idea of like using the AI to come up with different names and things like that. That's such a smart way of just like having this little assistant. I don't know if you know this, but JK Rowling, who wrote the Harry Potter books, she wrote them in this little cafe in Edinburgh, Scotland. And right around the corner, there was this cemetery that she would walk around and that's where she got all the names. So if you go walk around that cemetery, it still exists. You can see a bunch of the names on these tombstones because that's where she got them. But in this case, you don't need to go to some random cemetery. You can just ask the AI, hey, I want these kind of names or imagine that I'm walking around in a cemetery. Tell me what names I see. All right. That's our next prompt. <laughs> okay. Next one is the owner of a stock image site. So I thought this one was interesting because it shows the duality of perspectives here. And I don't necessarily think one is inherently right or wrong. I do think I would lean towards one versus the other. But one, Shuttershock is a stock image site, and they've actually publicly announced that they're going to start selling AI-generated stock imagery in partnership with OpenAI. So they have, again, leaned into it and said, look, we're in for the ride. This is going to help us create more stock images, maybe better stock images, and we're announcing it publicly. Now, Getty Images, another stock image site, is actually going the very opposite direction, and they are suing Stable Diffusion for apparently scraping its content. Now, I'm not sure how exactly they have determined that they've scraped Getty Images content, but I'll just quickly share that Stable Diffusion publicly shared what model it's trained on, and it's trained on this thing called Lion. L-A-I-O-N, which is a German nonprofit and also open source model that has trained on a data set of now over 5 billion image text pairs. And so it's very possible that Getty's images are part of that database. But yeah, anyway, what are your thoughts? I think that these legal battles around whether or not AI models are infringing upon copyright are going to be really important for developing the industry. But my guess is it's actually the wrong approach to go and sue these companies. And it's smarter to take the Shutterstock approach of partnering with the companies. It's just adapting to what is inevitable, which is that there are going to be these models. They're going to be trained on the web and different images, and there's going to be all kinds of different edge cases, et cetera, moving forward. But it's clear that there's some really cool ways in which you can use AI-generated images to create things that humans couldn't otherwise create and to potentially acquire images much more cheaply that are very high quality and to help you stand out in the marketplace of people who want images. And so I would rather go with this tailwind, this wave that people think is going to happen, than to be this person fighting the legal battle, because I don't really see where that leads. It'd be shocking to me if that stood the test of time. So I agree with you. And I think something you mentioned is so important, which is that, yes, some of these models may be able to completely replace the existing set of stock images today, but they also have the potential to make them much better. To your point, they can be more personalized. If you have a brand, you can incorporate your brand colors. If you have a product, you can put it into that image. You can just really fine-tune aspects of an image versus stock image sites. I can tell you I've used them before. And often you kind of get what you want, but it's just really hard to really find an image that exactly meets your spec. But I think we come back to the question that I mentioned with publishers, which is really that I think inevitably with many of these creative fields, you are seeing a rift between the people who were quote unquote the artists before and then the new opportunities that come from the technology. And you're going to see some companies like Getty say, the people who have built up our business are these stock image photographers. And right now they're being screwed, at least from their perspective. And therefore, we're going to stand by them and we're going to help them sue Stable Diffusion. And then Shuttershock is you know, in that other boat where they're saying, 
look, we'll still let people sell the images on our website, but we'll also create new stock imagery with these tools. And I guess they'll attract different types of artists. And I think you're right that some of the legal ramifications that are inevitable will dictate some of this as well. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say as not owning one of these businesses and understanding what it means, but maybe they needed to do this lawsuit to keep their creators happy and to make their business survive. And then it's totally a rational thing to do. It's not just like an outdated method of engaging with technology. So I guess it's business dependent. But with all of this stuff, we go back to an earlier point, which is I think there's the potential to expand markets and to create new forms of them. And I'd be looking for ways to do that rather than to hold on to my old business model. One parallel is the music industry, where I think many artists were resistant to putting their music on something like a Spotify because they didn't feel like they were getting paid well. And you can actually still make the argument there are many sites today that'll break down how much artists get paid on apps like Spotify, and it's not very much. But ultimately, what Spotify has been able to do is build the best product so it gets the most listeners. And therefore, if those artists want to reach those listeners, they they kind of have to give in. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a good or bad thing, but maybe there's some parallel dynamic where artists don't make very much on Spotify, but they make a lot of money through their tours. Maybe there's something similar there. I think it comes down to like how creative you can be within new environments. So for example, with Spotify, my guess is that many artists who previously could not get deals with record labels now have wonderful distribution through this app that so many people listen to their music through. And they may not make a lot of money, as you said, directly through that, but they've gotten really creative about other ways in which they can monetize their work and distribute it to people. And that's like a base audience or fan base that they otherwise wouldn't have had and their music wouldn't have gotten to the world. And maybe there are people who lose at the margins of that, but I think it really is just you're adapting to this new, more complicated world of an ever-changing technology landscape. And the more you hold on to what worked before, if it's dying, truly, that's the question you have to ask yourself, you're probably going to lose in the long run. You might be able to eke out three or four more years of whatever's been working for you, but then the world changes and you're left behind and you're the grumpy old person saying, that damn technology took away my whatever. And (laughs) I don't know, there's winners and losers when new tech comes in. And I think the most successful prolific people over time stay adaptive or they just have such a powerful moat in what they do that it doesn't matter. One interesting outcome from all of this might be that many artists realize that their work really isn't that special. And I don't mean that in a reductive way, but from my understanding, Lion, for example, that data set that trained on billions of images, you do have the right to redact your images from Lion. You have to request it, I believe, but you do have that option. And so you can imagine that If you're an artist and you're in this pool of billions of other images and you remove yours, I don't think the model is going to change very much unless people are specifically referencing your artistry. So I think we mentioned this in another episode, but there's this guy, Greg Ritkowski, and his name is the most common prompt, or at least it was for a period of time in stable diffusion. But if you're not Greg, then unfortunately or fortunately... There's so much data out there to be trained on that this art is likely going to be made no matter what. There may be restrictions on what you can include in a prompt, like people's names. I don't know. Again, regulation kind of has to catch up here. All right, let's move on to the next one, which I was very excited to hear from you on. It is the Princeton College Admissions Officer. And I was excited because for the listeners, Cal... You went to Princeton, which also for the listeners, if they are not aware, is the number one school in the United States. As a Canadian, I did not know this. I was trained to believe it was Harvard or Yale, but it is not. It is Princeton. Jeez, it really sounds like I paid you to say it that way. That was <laughs> a really embarrassing way to introduce this. But yeah, I don't, I've never been an admissions officer, but what were you thinking on this one? Well, let's just share a couple of the recent things in the news that are related. So, Very recently, I feel like in the last week, there have been so many headlines that say ChatGPT has passed the U.S. medical licensing exam, but also several other exams like a Wharton Business School exam, a law exam. Now, from my understanding, it's not acing these exams. I think it got a B minus on the business school one. But I guess we've had 
to my knowledge, a pretty standard admissions process for a lot of these schools for quite some time. And I wonder if these different tools can not only pass these exams, but I've also seen them write pretty solid essays. What do you do? Do you just like hope that students aren't using these? I think that's naive to believe. So I don't know. How do you properly vet who the best students are for these schools? Yeah. So for some background, at least for a school like Princeton, they have this very holistic process that takes in your test scores, your grades, your community service, your personal essays, and they have supplemental essays as well. And they're really looking to curate some class of a really well-rounded group of people. So they'll only take a certain amount of people from different areas to get geographical diversity. They'll get racial diversity. They'll get interest diversity. So that could be like the sports you're interested in or hobbies like chess or whatever. So they really are like curating a class. And I think already at these schools, there's so many applicants who have good test scores and grades and have polished backgrounds and are raised to be able to like excel in this admissions process that one of the biggest differentiators is your personal essay or the supplemental essays that you write. And usually what it comes down to is people are telling some sort of story about themselves that shares their interests, goals, their background, adversities encountered, et cetera, that makes an admissions reader think this would be a great fit for this campus. And so when I think of ChatGPT's ability to help people write essays, honestly, it's a nothing burger for me because what is a good college admissions essay? It's a good story with personal details that tells a message that is unique to you and your experience. And so you could use the tool to maybe help a little bit with your writing, but you can't use it to make up stories about your life unless you're willing to just blatantly lie, which I think would later come back to hurt you. So that's one thing. And if anything, I think that there's a worse feature of this admissions process, which I learned about when I was going through it, which is that there's wealthy parents who pay people like me and you who are further along in our life and who maybe have more experience writing to basically write and polish the essays of their 16, 17-year-old kids and to create something really compelling. And that leads to essays coming from kids that are way beyond the scope of what they would be able to write and really raises the bar, but is like par for the course if you want to get into one of these schools. And so if anything, I think ChatGPT could be a boon for lower income kids who might be able to get some of that supplemental help for cheap and to figure out a way to tell their story without having to shell out the thousands of dollars that they don't have. All of that is to say, I don't think it's going to impact the essays that much, at least in terms of creating a personal story that really resonates because that's just true to your experience. The AI can't really pump that out. That's actually such a good point because I'm sure tons of people are going to argue that kids should not be able to use ChatGPT for their admissions essay. But the same way that wealthier parents are able to get those kids parallel resources, another example of this are all of the rich people who can afford to hire a ghostwriter for their memoir. 99.9% of people out there cannot do that. But Prince Harry, for example, hired the same guy who wrote Shoe Dog. And of course, those two books are two of the most popular books ever. They didn't write them. No one's judging them for not writing them. But all of a sudden, if someone wrote their own memoir with ChatGPT, I think people would judge them. Yeah, it's a really weird thing that rich people do sometimes. It was just one of my big quibbles with the wealthy and something I discovered in school in a different way as well, where I would find people who thought it was unfair if someone took Adderall to study harder for tests, but then they themselves would send their essays to their parents who went to the same Ivy League school to review and comment on and to somehow think that was much better or morally okay than someone using Adderall to increase their focus and do all the work themselves. And I think there's these funny divides that we create, but I'm much more worried about the inequality in terms of access to these schools due to the compounding advantages of a wealthy person who can give their kids the resources from an early age, including those layers at the end of the process where they're helping them polish essays. And I think these schools do try to find kids from backgrounds that don't have those resources. I was one of them. And I do believe that my personal story was probably the only reason I got into the school because in many other ways, I was less well-rounded or achieving than many of my peers. But let's get to something practical. Let's say kids do start using ChatGPT. One thing that admissions offices can do and probably should do is you can just run all of the essays through some sort of model that says, was this written with AI? And there are already some examples of this where I've seen, it might've been a student or a professor who built a model to check exams to see if they were written with AI. 
OpenAI released something recently as well, a detector. But I do think that a lot of these will be good at best because ultimately I don't think the kids who are going to get into Harvard or Princeton are going to be dumb enough to just copy and paste an essay out of ChatGPT. Like they're going to mold it, they're going to adjust it, and it's not going to look like it came right from the AI printer. Sure. But I'm talking about adding maybe a layer on top of your process, which would be not just uh, right now, my understanding is humans read all of them. And actually, that creates just massive bias based on does your story resonate with the person who's reading it? And they may have like other people who read it and check it as well. But I think you could add on this layer. It was this written using AI. You can also do something like train AI on all of the essays that you've accepted previously and use that model to then grade all of the new essays coming in. You can look for parallel things, or it might be able to summarize them in ways that help you curate this class, because I imagine that's a really manual, burdensome process that could be outsourced in some way. And then the third thing you can do is have the humans read it as they're doing and give their grade and their perspective, even maybe use the two scores, the AI versus the human one, or however they evaluate them, and see if there are biases within the reader as well. You might be able to come up with a better admissions process by eliminating some of the human biases that are tough to work out by using this model to create a more objective assessment. And you could see, is this person consistently favoring people with certain qualities? And is that what we want in our process? Also, I don't know if they want to optimize around this, but you could literally look at all of the essays from the past and map those essays to the results of those people, not only within Princeton, but post-Princeton. You could use the essay actually as a predictor of performance. And if you wanted to optimize around that, you could do something that you could never do with a human because that human couldn't train on all of that data. So that's actually interesting. But I also have a question for you, which is just given the technology or even, you know, you could probably ask this question without ChatGPT. Is an admissions essay really the best way to vet who should be at Princeton? Like, is there not a better way to assess this? Well, it's not just the admissions essay. It's a whole set of criteria. And I actually do think, at least based on my experience of the kids I met there and the many people I've met since leaving, they do a pretty good job of bringing in a fairly well-rounded class of people that's interesting in different ways. And that ends up being the high achieving global citizens that they want them to be. I would be most interested in, are there ways that we can identify top talent from lower income backgrounds who don't have our normal criteria, who may be just really high potential additive people to our campus? Because one of the things that these schools focus a lot of time and money on is diversity of their class. And I think while they get diversity on paper fairly good, like they have a very balanced class, I found that there was still just an overwhelmingly large number of people from very wealthy, privileged backgrounds, regardless of all the other ways in which they may have been diverse. It's really, really hard for someone coming from the lower rungs of the ladder who may have a lot of potential to break into one of these schools still, no matter how much they try. And so maybe there's some ways that you can use AI for that. That's actually a great point. With the technology today, you can probably better than ever take huge data sets from the past and see who you might have missed. Like you might have missed a bunch of lower income kids that ended up being really successful or the types of people that Princeton would have really benefited from. And you can actually run that model and maybe surface the types of whether it's assessments or data points that you should be paying attention to. To close this section out, I'll say on the essays, I actually have some experience with this and that I create scholarships for students. And so I read actually probably thousands of essays every year coming from students. And it's honestly pretty easy to snuff out when someone hasn't written the essay themselves because it's like a 15-year-old did not write this. Like They're <laughs> not thinking on this level unless they're somehow just trained in a way that my mind can't imagine. But I'm like, obviously, your parents paid for help here. You use this in many different places. and I, in some ways, discount that in my mind because as good of a story as someone may have, you can see the ways in which it's just overly polished. And I prefer to see something a little bit more real. And the problem with this is that, yeah, the best essays still come from those people who use the resources. So if you aren't looking out for that bias, then you're just going to keep favoring the people who already have the pie. The pie. <laughs> they already have the pie. And, and actually... One thing that I changed my mind on because I was a scrappy poor kid from Orlando who broke into one of these schools was I was 
overwhelmingly impressed with the talent and achievement and thoughtfulness of my peers who came from wealthier backgrounds. I previously had a very negative image of that. And honestly, they were a lot better than me in many different ways and helped me level up and become a better person. And it wasn't really their fault that they got a bunch of resources. So I don't think we should just handicap people because they came from good backgrounds because it actually does produce really awesome people too. It's just about how do you get a wider group of people to be a part of these institutions that can really change people's lives. I definitely don't think you should handicap people, but I think tools like this actually democratize the ability to, for example, create a really good essay. And so I still think different admissions offices are going to have to innovate in some way. I don't know what the answer is here, but if let's say they're getting, I don't know, 10% of the essays that come in are really good and then they have to accept 5% total, that's whittling it down by 50%. If all of a sudden the essays that come in, which are excellent, are 50% of them, which would be a great thing in a way because it means that many more people are getting to put their best foot forward, well, I don't know, then maybe the essay has less influence in the admissions process. I'm not sure because like you, I'm not an admissions officer, but to me, there does seem like potentially a a change that is required. And the only reason that essay has so much importance in this particular case is because things like SAT scores, there are enough smart people and people who can pay for resources to help train their kids on the SAT. That doesn't prove to be an amazing filter. You have to hit some baseline, but there's way more people who hit that baseline than they can take into these schools. And so that's just like, hey, check the box versus something that really makes you stand out. And the essay is one of the few areas where people can share their uniqueness. So maybe there are other ways like, hey, do you really value someone who created a website that shares their interests or starting to value personal projects in a way that at least when I was going to school, that wasn't as big of a thing. But today, I'm sure they incorporate some of those things. I guess we'll have to see. Let's move on and do the final two. So the next one is similar. It's the middle school teacher. And you mentioned this already, but New York City, their school board has already blocked the use of ChatGPT. I also saw another article where a high school teacher thinks that ChatGPT already writes better than most students today. But the final thing I'll mention is that from the same article, there was this quote where basically... Someone mentioned that educators thought that Google, Wikipedia, and the internet itself would ruin education, but they did not. And so what do you think? Do you think that if you were a middle school teacher, you would ban it? You would rethink how you're creating assignments? What would you do? Well, I'd start with personal experience that I'm sure you had. But when we were going to school, Wikipedia was villainized by most teachers. It was said that it was an incredible source to use and you basically couldn't use it. Yet you could go to any random blog and use that as somehow a more credible source. It's so true. I remember this and it's crazy in hindsight because yeah, you literally could go to joemcbro.com and that could be a credible resource. And Wikipedia was like, no, you you failed this assignment because you you credited Wikipedia. Yeah. In the US they didn't go as far as allowing you to go to joemcbro.com, but I guess Canada <laughs> Canada might have different standards. Anyways, you remember that well. I think probably a lot of people do. Two things happened, I believe. One is Wikipedia likely got more credible over time. And then the second thing is we all got really used to the internet and using it as a resource and started to see it as something that was additive to our work. And still in college, I wasn't able to use Wikipedia. And I don't know if you should. We used deeper research papers and such. Academia has its own ways of doing things. But as it relates to the middle school teacher, I think the problem actually comes down to We teach kids that the goal of school is to get good grades. And the truth is that the best thing you can get from school is to become a socialized member of society who can engage with other people and to have the ability to learn and think critically on your own. And so if we continue to prioritize, hey, you need to get this A, kids are going to use the tools that allow them to write better than their level. But at the same time, if we could somehow invert that to say, hey, look, like the best essay isn't the one that's the most polished. It's not the one that you got your parents to pay some person to write for you so you get the good grade. It's actually the one where you tell the truest story about yourself or you look inwards or you show some sort of progression over your skill level. I don't know. The problem of education is very hard and I'm not super well-versed on it. But my thought is ChatGPT is probably a lot like Wikipedia and the internet 
and like calculators. I don't know if you remember this as well, but we had a lot of rules around how we use graphing calculators. Mm-hmm. They outsourced the functions of math. And probably at some point someone said, math is dead because there's the calculator. And it's not really true. We just were able to use these tools to be a part of the learning process. And we learned to accept that. So I think this tool will be one of those as well. I agree. I also wonder, as we've discussed throughout this, it can be used as a resource to improve education. Now, I don't think we're quite here yet, but you can imagine where a middle school teacher has an assortment of students at different levels. And if you could actually curate different kinds of assignments to someone's level or competence. And I could also imagine how that could be really helpful because I remember in high school, there was one calculus course that was notoriously hard. So hard, in fact, that I went on to college and my whole first year of college calculus, I got 100% in because the high school course was so much harder. And in this high school course, they honestly should have just made it easier. But it was so hard that a lot of kids who were good at math were just barely getting decent grades. And then a bunch of the other kids were just plain failing. And when you are just failing at something, it's the least motivating thing ever, right? There's no drive to want to go and ascend that learning curve because it just feels impossible. And so I wonder actually whether teachers can effectively use these tools to help kids level up in a more stepwise way instead of just giving every kid the same assignment to some, which may seem really easy, but to others, it might seem daunting. And then also, as we've talked about, like maybe making them more fun. God, I can just remember how many essays I had to write about topics I didn't care about, but also like books I didn't want to read because they weren't funny. And I wonder if you could just use these AI tools to spice things up a little more. Yeah, you just sparked a couple of ideas for me. One would be the teachers themselves could reinvent their lesson plans by using this tool. Instead of having everyone write the same essay about Shakespeare or whatever, they could go to ChatGPT and say, hey, I'm trying to teach my kids this. Give me 10 ideas on different things that people could write about. And Maybe the prompt isn't the same across all of them. And that probably causes problems with how you grade because you want to have unbiased and fair stuff. And then also school is just so built towards schools getting funding by enough kids passing standardized tests, that's probably another problem as well. But you could imagine assignments. I don't think I ever had this in school where part of your grade was you have to collaborate with someone else, a useful skill in life and the workforce and everything else. And 70% of your grade is how good of a collaborator you were and does not have to do with the pure quality of your work evaluated against some arbitrary standard or the skills of other people. We could start using a wider set of criteria to learn things that make them more well-adjusted to society. I think something important that we've uncovered here is just the ability to give good education is really bottlenecked by the sheer resources teachers have. Even just the fact that most teachers every year will deliver the same lessons, it's because it takes so much effort to recreate a lesson plan. But really, if these tools can be these little assistants to teachers, both on the side of preparation, but also grading, you can imagine how much more tailored the experience can be for every kid. I think one of those tools could be just plagiarism checkers. I think these already exist for different sources. But again, it's kind of like we talked about with the Princeton admissions thing. Was this thing written with ChatGPT? And if a lot of kids used it, there would be very similar sentences across different essays if enough people weren't careful. And so that could be one thing that you could use as well, which is just giving basic tooling to identify plagiarism, if you will, of these resources. But banning them seems dumb to me because the kids are going to be able to go home and use them on their home networks, even if they can't on the school. Yeah. But I think we've seen this even when we grew up that computers existed, but then the actual examinations, which you need to pass are done in ways where you can't quote unquote cheat. People still cheated, but it was a lot harder too. And so you could actually imagine how some students that use these tools too heavily don't actually learn the skills and end up doing really well in assignments, but then failing tests. Also, it seems the main concern here is around cheating and or outsourcing thinking. And you know, the truth is kids have been doing this since probably kids have existed. (laughs) There are so many different ways people cheated even when you didn't have this technology. And so this is just a new way to do that, to be lazy, to outsource your thinking, 
whatever. And kids will continue to find the next path to doing this, the ones that want to. So I don't see it as this big, great threat to education in that way. And I think that's probably a dangerous position to take instead of thinking about, again, how can we use this to elevate the educational experience? All right, let's move on to the last one, which is a little different. It is if you were the head of the bar association and the bar is the association that kind of governs or at least gives accreditation to different lawyers. Yeah, basically you have to pass the bar to become a lawyer. And then if you violate some code that you've agreed to, then they can take away your credentialing as a lawyer and then you can't practice anymore. It's basically like the legal equivalent of becoming a doctor in the medical field. All right. So the reason this is interesting is because I saw this story recently where a company do not pay, which is a technology company that has basically helped consumers fight different legal battles. They've mostly focused in the past on really small legal battles, things like parking tickets, for example, or helping people easily cancel their subscriptions that they'd no longer use. So that's where they previously focused. But in the last few months, they've talked about using AI to fight court cases and specifically to use AI to communicate to someone within a physical courtroom through an audio device. They shared that they wanted to do this. And then naturally, it got a lot of media attention, this idea of a robot lawyer. And that media attention led to the state bar threatening their founder, Joshua Browder, and saying that if he actually goes forward with the robot lawyer test, that he could potentially go to jail for six months. So this is another example of people who are having to, again, react to this technology advancing and people wanting to use it in different ways. And in this case, feels like the state bar had a pretty negative reaction threatening jail time. What do you think? Is what he is saying he's going to do is like a robot that sounds like a human, that's an AI, is going to make legal arguments in court in place no. of a human? No. So the human who is fighting their own court case would get instructions from the AI through this audio device. Oh, I mean, that sounds like a great idea, but he should have kept it more under wraps. But why would you go to jail for that? Lawyers have paralegals who look up case law for them and pull different documents and help them construct arguments. So it's strange to me that AI would be seen differently than, say, the humans who are already doing that type of work. Like lawyers are assisted by other people who have not passed the bar exam. Honestly, I feel very similarly. I think maybe what went into this is the fact that Joshua, the founder, was so open about their plan. So on January 20th, he tweeted, on February 22nd at 1.30 p.m., history will be made. For the first time ever, a robot will represent someone in a U.S. courtroom. Do not pay AI will whisper into someone's ear exactly what to say. We will release the results and share more after it happens. Wish us luck. So that's one tweet, but let me read you one more. In many of the tweets that he shared about this February 22nd court case, he clarified that's a municipal court case, but he wanted to go bigger. And so he also tweeted on January 8th, do not pay will pay any lawyer or person $1 million with an upcoming case in front of the United States Supreme Court to wear AirPods and let our robot lawyer argue the case by repeating exactly what it says. So he was kind of poking the bear a little bit, I think. But I agree with you in that it's another one of those examples where wealthy people have access to certain things that others don't. And in my opinion, this is a case where if someone opts in, which was required, right, someone had to opt in to using this AI lawyer in court, then I actually, I don't really understand what the problem would be. This strikes me as an industry that relies on heavy accreditation and an incumbency just trying to stop something that might be inevitable and also could be really good for people. One thing that's really stirred me up on the inside right now is from everything I know about the legal industry, you basically win if you have enough money to buy the best lawyer who has the best arguments, who's the best connected with the judges and stuff. And I guess you can't get out of everything, but you can certainly make things a lot worse. And it's one of the biggest inequities in our society. Like people who can't afford lawyers, they end up going to jail for a long time for petty crimes. And basically their lives are ruined and they don't have a chance to fix it. And then wealthy people who do heinous shit get away with it. And if I learned more about it, I would just be too enraged. But 
one idea that I think would be amazing is, I don't know if it's legal everywhere, but if you represent yourself in court, I think you have the right to a public attorney, but I imagine that those aren't the best ones. If you represent yourself and you can actually learn about how to construct an argument using the AI, which is not something you could do with Google right now, that would be an amazing thing for people who want to defend themselves and who are resourceful. And it strikes me as actually quite important because I know one of my big battles in life has been dealing with lawyers, accountants, and medical professionals. <laughs> it's these people who have this gated knowledge and you, I don't know if they're good. I don't know whether I can trust them. It's often expensive to access them. And I certainly don't have the bankroll to be able to access the best ones who want to service me well as a client. And so I've spent a lot of time with tax stuff, like pouring through IRS documents and all kinds of things. And if that could be made easier, I know that there are many things that could have been a lot better in my life with access to those things. And I'm someone with some resources. So I don't know. I'm with the people on this one. <laughs> I think that this should be allowed and encouraged and it, it maybe has the potential to help a lot of people or I'm just simplifying it. We might be simplifying it. And I could maybe see how there's an argument where they're protecting people the same way that there are accreditation laws, which require that you have X amount of money in order to invest in certain types of deals. And they're trying to, at least in theory, protect people who don't have that financial experience. I could see them also saying, well, we're actually protecting people so that they're not using this AI lawyer who has flaws and might not represent them properly. But at the same time, I think I end up where you are, which is if someone ultimately wants to opt into that, that's their decision. And of course, they should have all the data that they need to make that decision. But I don't love this idea of technology being banned in this way because it feels almost too early as well, where it's like, why not at least see where this can go? Also, if I'm understanding correctly, it's just the AI making legal arguments and then those being dispensed by the human there's still the judge and in some cases the jury Correct. to to evaluate that information. So it's just, to me, you're making arguments. They could be better or worse, and that's your decision to figure out. I, I just don't see why that would be a bad thing. And that's probably stemming from my own ignorance about the issue. <laughs> <laughs> I know. We should say that for all of these, like we are not the owners of stock image sites. We are not members of the Bar Association. We've never been Princeton admissions officers. We are content creators, but for the most part, we don't know what we're talking about. But what I thought was interesting about this episode was just, again, there's a bunch of people in different domains that are having to react to this technology. And there's many different types of reactions that we're seeing play out live. And I think it's kind of interesting to put yourself in those shoes. And there's probably many other shoes you could put yourself in we talked about doctors potentially. If I was an athlete, how might I use AI to enhance my performance? I think it's going to be fascinating to see not just how this new technology impacts different industries, but how industries react to it. And as we're already seeing in some cases, pushback. I think something we haven't touched on is all of the ways in which people should just bake this into their industry. Like an example with doctors that I've seen is doctors actually spend a ton of time typing up patient notes. You probably see them doing this when they're actually seeing you. And they're really just filling out information that they have to fill out, including an after-visit summary. Sometimes they have nurses help with this as well. That consumes a lot of their time. It takes away their focus from the patient. And what I've seen is an app where the conversation is recorded and everything is just immediately transcribed. Such an efficiency gain that I don't know if you would call that AI necessarily, but it's using technology to then free up some of the doctor's time from this administrative burden that they can then give better care to the patient. I've also seen businesses, like the example of the Princeton admissions one, I've actually seen a business implement something similar where you take in a feed of data, like in Princeton's case, the essays, and then you use that data and your former scoring of it to then score new essays and take away some of the human input to potentially remove bias, but also to free up that human time to do something more valuable. And I think the real practical use cases of AI will be businesses figuring out how to train their own models based on their proprietary needs and data to then make their operations more efficient. And a lot of these overarching legal, ethical, et cetera, concerns are missing what I think is really happening already amongst the smart business owners, which is how can we use this to create something that's more efficient and better and that moves our industry forward. I agree. Well, you've agreed with me too much on this episode. What do we disagree with? <laughs> I don't know. I think the reason we're agreeing here is because we don't actually know how this all unfolds. No, we don't. But 
if I can get better legal, financial, and medical advice with the help of AI, that would be a huge improvement. I think some of my most frustrating moments in life have come from these really entrenched industries that are pretty slow moving, that have lots of administrative overhead, that are high cost, and not getting access to the information that I need when I need it. And it's the really important stuff. And so to the extent that we can help people understand what's going on within their bodies without having them you know, schedule a doctor's appointment four weeks from now and getting an answer like, it could be many things. Why don't you just take some Advil? Yeah. <laughs> I will say that one of the biggest pitfalls of ChatGPT currently is actually how it sometimes gets facts wrong. So let's keep that in mind. And let's also remember, because of where I work, that nothing covered in this episode was legal business or tax advice. Nothing from this episode was advice. This is just two people speculating on a bunch of stuff that's coming up. And hopefully we see how some of it unfolds and talk about it later on. All right. Well, if you like this episode, you can find us on Twitter. I'm Steph Smith IO. And I'm Calvin underscore Rosser. And the podcast is Sidlis, S Y D L I S. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Oh,